Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my mind, all my thoughts, may they bring you glory. It's not about me. It's not about us, Lord. It's all about you. So my prayer this morning is you would use the words that have been prepared and thought about and apply them to our hearts. Speak through me, Lord, for your name. Amen. So, you know, there's always, um, as kind of pastors getting ready, I um, was going to print out my sermon yesterday as I was finalizing it, and um, I ran out of ink. And so I was like, you know, Saturday afternoon and my schedule's full and I'm squeezing it in. And so I just say this because if any of you saw, I don't normally print in blue ink, but my blue ink was working, my black ink wasn't. And so half my, pay, half my sermon's in blue and the other half is in black. And it was just one of those ideas of going, wow, there's always could be something if you choose to look at it. There always just seems to be something. Um, and so that kind of fits with today because as I was here Wednesday, a few Wednesday nights ago, I kind of started that meeting with this idea. I haven't learned how to use my glasses yet except to read, so I'm just going to play with them. Uh, about what is the purpose of the church? Like, why, why does the church exist? What was God doing with this? And, you know, honestly, this is a subject that hits home to me. Um, I was just listening to a podcast Younger generations, millennials, Generation Z, aren't seeing the value in the church anymore. They're not seeing that. And some of you may have felt this because you may have kids, grandkids, that they just don't go to church anymore. You know, that it's just not their priority. And my, in my own household, my son is 17. He's a senior. He's going off. And, and he, at our church, was in that awkward, not awkward, he's in that, he was, we knew he was in like a gap in that he was friends with everybody older than him not friends with those younger. So when everybody graduated, you know, we're having discussions of, do I have to go to church? Do I have to, why? You know, can I do this? Can I do this? And I'm having to sit there and say, well, what is the purpose of church? You know, is church just a place we go to get fed? Is it just a place we go to be with people? What is the purpose? And so I've been having these conversations in my own family. And that's what I want to look at today is what was the purpose of the church? Why did God create this beautiful mess that we call the church? And does, do those reasons still apply today? And let me say, when I say the word church, I actually mean the gathered believers. You know, in Greek called the ekklesia, the people of God. So when I say the word church, think people of God, think the family of God, all right? Because we are a spiritual family. And so that's what I want you to hear, even though the church is easier to say than family of God and spiritual, try to mix it up. And so the Bible's filled with references to the church and what the church should be and what the church should do. However, I want to go to Hebrews um, because I was really inspired by some of those and also let you know that some of these points came from a sermon I heard um, from a guy named Doug Fields. And so to give him some credit for some of these points too um, as I've pulled these all together. But in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25 is our main scripture today. And then we're going to branch off into some others. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, 
Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts full of trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promises. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. You might be going, that doesn't sound a lot like church, but it's in there. There's a lot about the church within those verses. Um, But before we can get into these verses, we actually have to back up to chapter 10. Because in the book of Hebrews, and especially in chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews is starting to make a case that Jesus' sacrifice is greater, the final sacrifice, the end sacrifice of all. So when you hear the word sacrifice, you should hopefully go back to the Old Testament. Go back to those books you often skipped when you were trying to read through the Bible. Or when you said, I'm going to read through the Bible this year, and you start in January with Genesis chapter 1, and then you get to about March and Leviticus, and you're kind of going, what? Why is all this in here? That's the sacrificial system. That is what God put in place. Because here's my idea, and I often share this with, especially working with teenagers, our God is a vivid God. He is a creative God. So he wanted you to feel to smell, to understand things. And that's why when you read, especially the Old Testament, things are so descriptive. The details of building of the tabernacle, but the details of the sacrificial system. Because when you read Leviticus, you realize every sin has a cost. And when I sin, when I rebel against God, when I choose my way instead of God's way, something had to die. And it seems really archaic, Seems very cruel today because we don't live in a world where we still kill things. Our food is killed for us and we get to eat it, except for those few that still live on farms. But for the majority of history, you got to kill your own food. You saw the sacrifice the animal was making for you to live. You had this understanding of this. And God wanted us to know every time you sinned, an animal died. It started from Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden. You might miss it, but it says, and then God made clothes for them from animal skin, the first sacrifice that had to be done because of their sin. So God wants us to get this rich understanding that sin has consequences. It's not just freedom. It's not just free, that we should feel guilty. There should be elements of this, but the sacrificial system wasn't just because God was cruel. It was because God wanted to paint a picture for us to prepare us for Jesus. The whole Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus and saying, this is where I'm going. This is my plan. I am forming a people. From the call of Abraham, you will be blessed so you can be a blessing. I'm forming a people who can reflect me to the world. And so the sacrificial was to prepare. So this is where the Hebrews chapter 10 picks up, you know, especially if you jump to verse 12. So we'll go to verse 11. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again 
and again, which can never take away sins. So again, going back, we've lived this. And the writers, there's, depending on when this was written, the temple was still active up until 70 AD, where people were seeing the sacrifice of the bulls and the goats and the doves. And he says, but the thing is, you had to do it every year, every time. It was repeating it, just like some of us feel. We always have to say we're sorry, always going back over the same sins. Where am I? 12. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. And then he, meaning Jesus, sat down in the place of God or at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Christ, one sacrifice for all. No more do we have to sacrifice animals. No more do we have to pay the penalty for our own sins. No more. That sacrifice stood once and for all for our sins, even today. Casts a shadow over all of eternity and saying, no, Christ stands for all. And then in 17, 15, it says, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to this. For he says, this is the new covenant Remember, the old covenant was the sacrificial system. I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put their law in their hearts, and I will write the law on their minds. And then he promises, and I will never remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when the sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer more sacrifices. So I hope you're grasping the point of this. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. We no longer must feel guilty or carry shame alone because we can turn to the cross and we can turn to Jesus and say, forgive me, Lord, for my sins. Forgive me for the ways I've turned my back on you, the ways I've rebelled on you, the ways I've chosen my way over your way. We always have the door open that we can go into the presence of God through the blood of Jesus. And then it gets better than that, is the Holy Spirit. Jesus sends us the Holy Spirit to give us a new heart and to renew our mind so we can experience a transformed life. God's Spirit is inside of us, transforming us day by day by day. This is why... Um, Neil Anderson in his, in his dealing with bondage and sin and habitual sins and especially um, bigger sins like pornography and those habitual sins. He says, when you give your life to Christ, you no longer are a sinner saved by grace. You become a saint who occasionally sins. Your nature on the inside has been flipped because now you've become a saint as scripture calls us who still sins because no one's perfect, but our insides have been re transformed by the Holy Spirit living inside of us with our spirit together. And so maybe you know this to be true in your own life. Maybe you felt it, this transformation. Because I just imagine if we would have a testimony time right now, which some churches still do, and I, they're good to do every now and then. And you said, hey, come up and tell us how Jesus transformed your life. I imagine there's some people that would stand up with testimonies like this, I used to be filled with so much anger, but I'm not anymore. It's gone. 
I used to be addicted to pornography or to sex, but now I'm free. I used to be addicted to drugs, alcohol, nicotine, but now I don't need them anymore. I used to hate those people, but now I love them with an indescribable love. I used to hate Christ, but now he is my savior and my best friend. I used to be afraid, depressed, withdrawn, but now through Christ, I have found a peace that passes understanding. I'm sure some of you have some of those testimonies, and I know I do. I am multiples of those. <laughs> but the one I'll share is anger. I used to really struggle with anger and fear. I don't know what it was when I grew up. Part of it is, I think I shared last time we started, I didn't get saved till I was 17, and I didn't grow up to, in a Christian home. And I grew up with a dad that was very angry and very violent. And so I lived with this anger and violence and, and fear because I couldn't control my own anger because my dad never witnessed controlling his. And I was afraid all the time. And then growing up in the 70s, you know, some of the younger people, to date myself, may not know, but we used to have like nuclear drills of like, let's hide underneath a desk to save us from new nuclear bombs because Russia was going to bomb us. And I don't know why they thought a desk would help, but that was what we trained in school. You know, I mean, you had to learn to crouch down. Well, that created a fear to where I actually, you know, people were afraid of the year 2000 because of what would happen with the computers. I actually thought that I wouldn't live beyond 2000. I had this irrational fear that I was going to die before the year 2000. And it wasn't until I confessed it to some people and opened it up, did God remove that and say, you're being silly because I just had this irrational fear and anger. And I thought I controlled my anger until I had kids. Mm -mm -mm. I really thought I was doing so good with my anger. And then all of a sudden, these little kids come around. And if you want to know the sin nature is real, have children. Because, and they were sweet kids. They're good kids. But oh my gosh, all of a sudden, I'd hear myself sounding like my dad. And I swore I'd never sound like my dad. And I just had to sit there and hit my knees and say, Lord, I can't do this. I do not want to be like my dad. I do not want this in my family. I don't want my kids growing up the same anger and fear that I grew up with. So you need to do something. And I don't have a specific day. I don't know when. All I know is that it's gone down and I don't get angry. I can feel it every now and then, but hopefully I hide it well. You know what I mean? And, and, and I asked my kids once, I said, do you guys remember when I used to like yell? And they're like, no, not dad. No, dad, we never knew you to have a temper. And I was like, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you'd help the race. So I have that testimony. And that testimony is only because of Jesus Christ. And that's where we pick up. So that's a long introduction, but that's where we pick up into verse 19. And so, kind of building off of what I just told you in earlier chapter 10. Dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. So the first point I have of why, what is the purpose of the church and why you should be a part of a church is because we can learn to focus on God in the church. The church's job is to remind us day in and day out about the love, the sacrifice, and the resurrection of Jesus. Every time. It's supposed to remind us that we are to turn our eyes not to the world, but to God. 
And that's part of what we should do every time we walk into worship. That is the purpose of the church. It's the purpose of why we're a spiritual family. God is making a family of people to think differently. So he wants us to know we have a direct line to the death of Jesus and resurrection. We are no longer guilty. We're washed clean. We can enter directly into God's presence. We don't need a mediator. Jesus is our mediator. So the church is a place where we remember the death and resurrection. We enter into God's picture. And it's a part of a spiritual family. See, what I love is that the church, if we go big C church, universal, is we are part of a family of believers that goes around the world. And some of you have probably experienced this already, where you've traveled around the world and you still go to church Sunday morning and you walk into that church and you feel at home because you're with your brothers and sisters who have all found life through Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter if you speak the same language, doesn't matter if you speak the same songs, you walk in and you instantly feel like, I am at home because I am a part of something bigger. The world can't offer that today, but the church, the spiritual family of God can. And that is what God is doing in the church. So one of the purposes of the church is to turn our mind to God, to give us a right representation of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. To be very clear of that. Another one, if you jump down to verse 23, when we are part of a church, we find hope for our problems. Verse 23, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Sometimes, I know in my life, I've questioned whether God was still keeping his promise. Because we've seen pain, we've seen brokenness, we've experienced hurts, and we say, Lord, are you still keeping your promise to me? And we go to church, and all of a sudden we get encouraged because we see, oh yeah, they overcame that problem. And they're in church. Oh yeah, I see that person, and I know their testimony. And I remember that they've made it through. I can make it through. I had this, um, there is a, in my last church I worked at, there was this saint. She lived to be 101. And I loved talking with her because she had walked with Jesus for, I think, 90 years. I mean, maybe longer because I don't know when she became a Christian and I had the privilege of doing her funeral. And I would talk with her. And do you know the power of talking to someone that has been friends with Jesus? for 50, 60, 70 years. I'm, I'm still relatively long and I'm young in the faith. I don't know what it's like, but you meet these saints in the church who can tell testimonies of what they lived through and have walked with Jesus over and over again. That is where we find hope. Because if, if hopefully some of you do know, but if not, you'll be amazed at the darkness the people around you have walked through and where they found Jesus walking with them all the time. And unfortunately, this is happening in my home church this weekend. We have a family um, that is double grieving. Two weeks ago, my friend Mike, just a little bit older than me, his father was diagnosed and put on hospice. And so Mike was really spending time with him because his father didn't know Christ yet. 
And so Mike was spending time with him. And just two weeks ago in church, our pastor got to stand up and say, hey, I got a text this morning from Mike. You know, his dad's on hospice. His father gave his life to Christ. And Mike got to leave his dad to Christ on his deathbed. But then I get an email this week that Mike has died. Led his father to Christ. His family came in for the funeral. His family literally just got home from wherever they went. And Mike's died in his sleep. And they're all coming back. This, his wife and his kids are dealing with two deaths in two weeks. That is a tragedy. That is not God's design. That is that we live in a broken world with broken people and with broken bodies. That is the sign that we need a savior. But what is beautiful is the prayer emails that have gone out. And the people... I did warn you all last time I was here, I'm the crying pastor. So, um, that the way we are surrounding this family, I don't know how you get through a crisis like that without the church body. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how they're going to do it, but I know our church is going to do their best to love them. And we're going to surround them, and we're going to care for them. That you can't find anywhere else. So that's why the church matters. Point three is, we motivate each other to love and good deeds. Verse 24, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good deeds. See, the church isn't just about us. Sometimes we think it's just about us, but it's not about us. It's about sharing Jesus' love in the world. We are called to acts of love and good works. Every church should be making a difference in their community and the world. Church is meant to be a city on a hill, a light on a lampstand, supposed to be shining light into the darkness of our world. And if you've been paying attention to the news, our world is getting darker. <laughs> it's getting more divided, more separated. There's just, I believe it's Satan's plan to raise up division like we've never seen it before. I'm young. People say it was as divided in the 60s and before that, and then some people would say it was divided at the Civil War. But it seems like he's doing it again, trying to divide us, to make us not be. And it's only through love that and good works that we're going to make a difference in this world. And so I believe this is why the elders feel like the merge is the best future for Bethlehem. Because the merge will allow Bethlehem to get back to its strengths, to allow this church to get back what it was designed for, sharing the gospel with your neighbors in Dover, through ESL, in the neighborhoods around this church. Your elders, through a ton of prayer, fasting, conversations, feel that the merge is the best way forward to allow you to be the church that is, again, a city on a hill that is transforming the communities around you and the people around you. I also need to acknowledge that to some of you, this merge feels more like a death or a failure. It just does. And to others, it feels like a resurrection. It feels like a new hope. It feels like a new calling. Both sides are in here, and that's okay. That's okay. That's reality of when we deal with things that are hard like this. But I think either side, 
Well, and some of you, I know it feels like a takeover. And it might even have felt that way a few weeks ago when Armin was here and the place was packed. But I hope both sides could agree, whether you're grieving or whether you're excited, that there's a vision for Bethlehem where it can be a place where the lost are found, where Bethlehem can be a place where the broken find healing, where you can bring your neighbors and let them hear the good news, where the hurting can find comfort and peace, where the pews are full again, where the church is busy every single night. There's somebody here, some meeting, some group, somebody meeting and being transformed by the love and the good works of this church. I know the elders believe that vision comes true through the merge. I do too, but I'm just on the sidelines. Um, So this is the church, the body of Christ. It's not just sitting here Sunday mornings. It's being acts of love and good works. It's doing acts of love and good works in our neighborhood, in our people, in the people around us. Our spiritual family should motivate us to think beyond ourselves and should maybe challenge us to give more to others. That's the purpose of the church. Because if not, it's real easy. You stay home and watch Netflix all the time to not think of others and to not want to give to others. But the church calls us to do this different. All right, point four. We are called to encourage or exhort each other. Verse 25, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that his day of his return is drawing near. We are supposed to keep meeting together. That's the purpose of the church. So that's what I say to my son. Don't quit. Don't drop out of church because the church is the body of Christ. And really Christianity isn't about Christianity. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about that. And then God calls us as followers of Jesus to come together and say, hey, be a family. Work together. You know, Paul writing to Timothy, he says in in Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, I am writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. So how are we supposed to conduct ourselves within the household of God, the spiritual family of God? This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundations of truth. The church is a place in a world without truth that still has truth. We still have the foundation of truth, and it's Jesus Christ. So a church, the reason you should be a part of a church and a spiritual family is to help you make sense of the world. Because you're getting all kind of truths coming at you, especially the younger generations, but all generations are getting truth coming out. No, no, this is true. No, this is true. No, this is true. No, this is true. And this is a place where you can come and open up God's word and hear the truth. Hear the creator of the universe, the one that made us, the one that designed us, the one that created this world and knows how it's meant to work. Tell us what life should be. That is the purpose of the church. And that's why we go is to encourage each other with these groups, with these truths. So at one level, it doesn't matter if people are finding this truth under the constitution of Bethlehem or under the constitution of grace. Because the bigger picture is, are you a part of a church that's still preaching the gospel that has the greater constitution of a gospel of love? 
That is what we're having. Does it really matter whose constitution someone gets saved under? Or someone gets transformed under? Or that programs are run under? It's a gospel of love. As Paul writes in Ephesians, instead we speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each of us, each does its own special work, it helps the parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and full of love. Christ is the head of the church. Not your pastor, not your elders. Christ is the head of the church. It is Christ's body, and he arranges the pieces how Christ wants. There's good news in that because that means you have been chosen to be here. You didn't come here on your own. The Spirit of God brought you here and said, this is the local body I want you to be a part of. This is what I want you to be. And he fits us together in ways that we can't see. And we know, and I said this on Wednesday night, many of you, myself included, because we've been working with you now for almost a year, if not longer, have been praying for God to resurrect the church, to do something different here. And so I throw it out there, maybe the merge is the answer to that prayer. Maybe that's the prayer. And we've been looking over here and God's tapping on the shoulders and say, hey, maybe it's this over here. And that's what your elders have wrestled through. Lord, which way? Which way? Where do we go? And can we trust the goodwill? Because Christ builds the church. We don't. But there's also some hard questions we have to ask when we're thinking about growing in love. Is our lost people being saved? See, I worked at a church for the last 13 years before I left in 2011 where I only knew of one adult that got saved and baptized in my 13 years at this church. It was a good church. It was filled with great people. I loved them all. My kids grew up in that church. But we weren't saving lost people. We were getting all transfer growth. We had teenagers that are getting saved. We had children that were being saved and baptized. But we weren't saving adults. And I was a pastor in the church, and so a lot of that falls on me. Because that was me. I wasn't helping lost people. We got too comfortable. Because the church became about us inside the building. Not about those outside the building. And so I look back now my time there and I say, even though we were a great church and I loved those people and I still love them today, we weren't necessarily a healthy church. Because lost people weren't being saved. And that is the question. Are lost people still being saved here? Or could this merge be a place to again bring lost people to be saved? Is that a way to bring resources, abilities, people to get back to the kingdom of God and not just focus on healing or what's happening? That's what we're praying about. But here's the encouraging thing. So I work, you know, at the center. Esther, one of our new coworkers, told me this story. And she just showed it, shared it with me on Tuesday, and it was incredible. So Esther used to go to church in Westchester, Pennsylvania. It's about an hour from where we work. And while she was there, she lived there and worked there, and she met a barista. So I'm working in a coffee shop. And she started having conversations with her. 
And she found out that this woman had a lot of pain, a lot of problems, some addictions. But Esther just loved her, befriended her. And she happened to say one day, hey, if you could do any job in the world, what would you want to do? And she goes, honestly, it's kind of weird, but I love payroll. I love numbers. I would love to do a job with that, but who's going to hire me, you know, with my past? And Esther's like, well, do you know, I work for an HR firm, and we put people, we put people all over in businesses all the time. She's like, really? You would do that for me? She's like, yeah. And then Esther invites her to church and said, why don't you come to church with me too? So Esther works with her, gets her a job at QVC in payroll. She said it was a miracle they hired her, but they did. And then she starts coming to church with her every week. Then Esther gets called to Italy as a missionary and goes and lives in Italy for three years. She just came back in the fall. We get the chance to hire her, so now she's working with us. So on Sunday, last week, she went back to that church in Westchester. She still considers it her home church. And who did she sit down right behind? This same girl three years later. And she told me, she goes, so afterwards they got to talk, and she's like, what's been going on? And she said, you won't believe it. My life's been transformed. I'm free from my addictions. I no longer work at QVC. I got a better job to where I'm actually in charge of a payroll department. And the pastor loves me here so much that he's helping me shadow and learn about our addiction ministry here so I can start eventually learn how to help people get out of addictions like I've been out of addictions. And then I just said to the pastor, hey, can I help you rethink our homeless ministry? Because I think I have some really good ideas on how we could better serve the homeless. And the pastor's like, sure. So Esther came in and she was just so excited because here's one person sharing an invitation with one person and loving them bring him into the family of God, and then is transformed while Esther's away. It wasn't Esther, it was the Holy Spirit transforming them to where now they are active, vital member of that church body, transforming people. That is the vision. One friendship, one invitation, and a life is transformed. Which leads to my final point. We are being built into God's temple. Now, if we stay in the book of Ephesians, verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are his house. Remember, the church isn't a building. It's a people. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone, the whole point on which everything is aligned is Jesus Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. See, God is building us into a holy temple. We are the church. The church is not a building. We are the spiritual family, and God is building us. You did not come here by yourself. God brought you here because you have something to offer this community and this community has something to offer you. And when we choose not to participate in the church, we lose out on community. But there's another thing about God's temple and the church. Sometimes God has us rub shoulders with people we would never rub shoulders with. See, we tend to hang out with people like us, more so today is we only watch the, the, the news show that we like their perspective better than the other news show. 
We only have friends on Facebook that we like their perspective than others. We are isolated to only be around like us. And God says, no, 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 that's not the church. I want the church to be here filled with all types of people. And honestly, sometimes in church, there's going to be people here who drive you nuts, who rub you the wrong way, who every day before you walk into church, you got to pray. Oh, Lord, just give me strength to say the right thing. I got to do that. And you know why? You know, well, praise God for that. Because what God is doing is maybe you need to learn and I need to learn patience. Maybe I need to learn grace. Maybe I need to learn forgiveness and love. And who better to develop these characteristics than by interacting with a Christian brother and sister who drives us a little crazy? Who better, how better for God to teach that to us than rubbing shoulders with someone that bugs us? And that is the beauty of the church. Not just diversity in views, but diversity of age. You know, we are so much more isolated to where we don't get to hang out. A lot of, and you may see it in your lives, a lot of don't have grandparents live by, nearby. So the church elders, the church older people get to be the grandparents of your kids, to love them. That's what I experienced in my church. They loved me, and I have grandparents. We have aunts and uncles in the church where my kids grew up because my family was in Pittsburgh. My wife's family's in Lancaster. We were active with her family. My family's not active. So God replaced them. And I especially want to make this point because if this merge happens, this rubbing shoulders with people that you may or may not like will be very true. Because there may be people that show up here, and they may sit in your pew. Are you still going to love them? Are you going to see them as brothers and sisters in Christ? There will be other people here that you're going to bond with, and you're going to have heart-to-hearts with, and you're going to go, oh my gosh, I'm so thankful you're in my life. Because that is the beauty of the church. So either way, God is going to use this experience of the merge to transform you, just like he's using the experience of the church today to transform you through his Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus. That is God's ultimate goal. That's why we take the name Christian, little Christ. Because God wants us to represent Christ to the world, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, and the people in the church. So in conclusion, the church is not perfect. It's made up of imperfect people, you and me. However, it is God's design. And within this spiritual family, we can learn to focus on God. We can find hope for our problems. We can motivate each other in love and good deeds. We can encourage each other with the truth. And we are remembered we're being built into God's temple. And it is my prayer that Bethlehem will be that type of church.